Please join me in prayer. Gracious and merciful God, you who did not let us go our own way, but who sent your prophets and ultimately sent your son to call us back and free us from the fears and the desires, the lies that enslaved us. We come today and we ask you to speak. Touch my lips. Open our ears. Let that which is said bring glory and honor to you. And may our lives be transformed. Speak, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. In the name of Jesus, amen. It is uh, truly a great pleasure to have the opportunity to come and speak a bit about Hebrews. Um, The great thing about the canon of Scripture is that every text is equally important, and every text has within it the possibility of transforming our lives, because God speaks in every text. But if I had to choose one text that was my favorite, Hebrews would probably be that text. Hebrews, of course, does not stand alone. If all we had was Hebrews, we'd miss out on a great deal of truth about our Lord and Savior, about our God. But if we missed out Hebrews, we would also miss out on a great deal of truth about our Lord and Savior. The job that I've been asked to do today is to give a fairly brief overview of this incredible sermon, because that's what Hebrews is. Hebrews is a first century, early follower of Jesus, preaching to a congregation whom he knows well, and exhorting them to persevere through the wilderness. That, I think, is the big idea. There are lots of big ideas. But the thing that organizes Hebrews, the reason that this sermon was preached, is to encourage the people of God somewhere, we don't know where, in the ancient world, to persevere in their confession about Jesus, even when things are difficult. So what I want to do today is just march through a few of the major themes in the book of Hebrews to try and give us an overview as you then turn and work carefully through this sermon uh, for the rest of your time on it. It's not an easy thing to preach a sermon on a sermon, but, uh, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> Hebrews develops an extended metaphor of God's people in the wilderness. Now, the way that Hebrews does this is to think about the present time. Today, the author says. Today. And name this as the last days. The last days are a particular period of time. They were a very special time for certain Jews around the time of Jesus. During the last days, certain Jews expected that God would begin to work in new and exciting ways. The Spirit would be poured out in the last days. 
days. There would be some fresh sense in which God was present with and among his people in a way that was not paralleled at any other time before. Moreover, the last days were that time, that period of time, that lasted right up until the moment when God finally made good on all of his promises to his people. When God brought his people into the world to come. The future blessing which he holds out for all of his people, this inheritance, this Sabbath rest, a great number of metaphors are used throughout Hebrews to describe the new creation. Because that is what it is. The world to come is that moment when everything is finally the way God always intended it to be. When God's people will be present with God, face-to-face, in a recreated reality. The language that we use to talk about people in this respect is resurrection. That time when in our bodies we will see our Redeemer. This time comes right after the last days. Thus, it's called the last days. Now, what early Christians believed, and we see this clearly in Hebrews, already in Hebrews 1 verse 2, the writer says, in these last days, God now speaks to us by his son. What early Christians believed is that because of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the last days had arrived. That's what today is. For the author of Hebrews. And that today continues to be the reality in which we live, just like those early Christians. But the way that the author then develops a metaphor to talk about the last days is very rich. He talks about the last days in terms of the wilderness wandering. This is what he does in Hebrews chapter 3 through 4. He goes back to his scripture. These texts through which God speaks. And he finds that the situation that those who follow Jesus are currently in today, in the last days, parallels the situation that God's people were in in the wilderness. And this metaphor does a lot of work for the author of Hebrews. This age, just before the fulfillment of God's promises, is like the space of wandering in the wilderness just before God's people entered into the promised land that he held out for them. That's the way this metaphor works. Now, there's of course a lot that we could develop, but we only have... 35 minutes or so this morning. So let's move on to talk about one of the main themes that the writer uses in terms of how we live in the last days. The writer encourages, the the sermon preacher as well, encourages this congregation to persevere in the midst of the testing and the trials that will come in the last days. Go back and look at the wilderness again. 
God's people faced trial after trial after trial. In the wilderness, you can expect trials to come. In the wilderness, you can expect to wonder where your food will come from. In the wilderness, you can expect to wonder how you're going to have a drink. In the wilderness, you are still looking forward to that land of plenty and blessing which God has promised for you. In the wilderness, you can expect trials. The proper posture, if you will, the proper way then to live in the wilderness is to persevere. This, of course, is what faith is for for Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 is a litany, a list of individuals who looked at the wilderness in one way or another, whether it was death, whether it was not being able to have children, whatever it was, they looked at their situation and they looked beyond it to say, God has promised this blessing of life, of a city, of, uh, of a land which will never be taken away, of uh, children to Abraham and Sarah. God has made this promise. Therefore, even when I look at the wilderness... I know that God will actually make good on his promise. This is how faith then works in Hebrews. And this is why in the midst of the wilderness, perseverance and faith go hand in hand. Hebrews then aims to encourage us today to keep moving towards the inheritance. To keep moving through the wilderness and not to turn away from Jesus and the promises that God has made to his people. Much of the sermon then is taken up with offering encouragement and warnings to persevere in the present time of the wilderness. During the last days, yes, God is present in new and special ways. Yes, the Spirit of God has been divided up and poured out upon his people. And yet, we should expect the darkest hour to come before dawn, as it were. We can expect that in the midst of this time, we will face trials. Because during the last days, we are in the wilderness. Now, it's important here to take a sort of excursus away from this metaphor and talk a little bit about the primary problem that the author of Hebrews identifies that has, has been dealt with by Jesus. That problem, it will come as no surprise, is ultimately the problem of sin and the related problem of death. So what is sin in Hebrews? Well, once again, we see from the wilderness, the author is able to draw some very clear examples for us of what sin actually looks like. And sin in Hebrews is primarily refusing to obey God's voice. Sin is chiefly not moving forward into the very presence of God. That's one of the key ways that the author speaks about sin. So when we look at Hebrews 3 through 4, and we find 
God's people, Israel, in the wilderness, we see that first, if you think about the big story, first, God frees his people from the power that was enslaving them in Egypt. They stood in bondage under the power of Pharaoh. Pharaoh kept them enslaved. They were not free to go and worship their God, and they certainly were not free to enter into the promised land that God had said he would give all the way back as far as the patriarchs earlier in the book of Genesis. They were enslaved. But God desires worship, and God desires fellowship. With his people. That is why he freed them from their slavery in Egypt, so that they could go out and worship him, so that they could go out and enter the promised land, so that they would be able to dwell together with him as their God. But there are two basic problems that arise as a result of the sin which continued to be there with the people as they moved through the wilderness. And these problems get in the way of that worship. And they get in the way of that fellowship with God. The first problem is the fear of death, according to Hebrews. And this is especially clear in Hebrews chapter 2, But it runs through Hebrews chapter 4. Fear, the author of Hebrews says, enslaves us. The fear of death enslaves us. It prevents us from the freedom that is required for us to actually worship God and enter into God's presence. And in particular, the devil is the one who wields that power of death. The one who keeps us enslaved and fearful. If you think about the metaphor the writer is developing, the people of Israel are afraid to go into the land after they hear what the spies have to say. If you think about Numbers chapter 13 and 14, when Joshua, whose name in Greek is Jesus, goes into the promised land together with 11 other spies, they are forerunners who get the first taste of the goodness that God had promised to his people. They enter the land, and ten of them at least are overcome by fear. Because they look around and they see that the land is good, but there are already people living in the land. And they look at themselves and think there is no way that we can overcome them. That was probably true. But what they forgot is who was on their side. God said, go. The people said, no way. We will not go because we cannot fight against those who are in the land. Again, that was probably true. But they forgot who was on their side. Fear led them to disobedience. They would not do what God said to do. After God then pronounces a judgment upon them, which Hebrews calls up again from Psalm 96, Psalm 95, uh, God pronounces a judgment on them and says, fine, you will not be able to go into the promised land. This whole generation will die off. Now, 
the people, again, facing death, say, okay, God, we'll go. Although God at that point said, no. And they said, we'll go. Both times, they refuse to obey what God says to them. They will not do what he says to do. When he says go, they say no. When he says no, they say go. (laughs) Exactly the opposite of what they're supposed to do. This is how fear can tend to work. Fear can destroy us. Fear keeps us from doing what God tells us to do. Fear makes us want to hide. Fear makes us want to cover up. Fear makes us want to lie. Fear produces shame. Because of our fear, we hurt ourselves and we hurt others. We were enslaved to the devil. We were enslaved to the fear of death. But Hebrews reminds us that that is no longer the case. Because Jesus died, we have been set free from that fear of death. We are free from the power of the devil. Just like the Passover, just like the first exodus, God has freed his people from the enslaving power. You can begin to see now why the writer thinks in terms of the wilderness. Just like the people of God were set free through Passover, so also God's people today, in the last days, are set free through the death of Jesus. But the second problem with sin is that it creates guilt and it creates a kind of impurity. The holy and almighty God does not allow impurity and guilt to come into his presence. That is one of the chief things that the sacrificial system that's laid out for us in Leviticus teaches us. It teaches us a lot more than that, but that is one of the key things that it teaches us. We are not able to simply waltz into the presence of God on our own terms whenever we want because we are sinners and because we are impure. And God does not want that in his presence. Sacrifices are there to deal with those problems. And only when they are properly dealt with can God's priests enter into his presence. You might recall the story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who decide that on their own terms, they will walk into the Holy of Holies and present God uh, incense, strange fire, the text says. And God says, absolutely not. And they died instantly. God's holiness is deadly serious. We are not able on our own terms to simply enter into the presence of God. Like fear, our guilt and our impurity drive us away from God. These twin problems combine to push us in the wrong direction. Think again of Israel in the wilderness. 
Fear kept them from moving forward. Guilt pushed them to move when they oughtn't to have moved. They ultimately began to grumble and complain and say things like, wasn't it better when we were slaves in Egypt? They wanted slavery again rather than moving forward into the promised land that God had said he was going to give to them. They disobeyed. They lacked faith in the wilderness. This then creates a vicious cycle all the way through the wilderness period. And in some ways, the author of Hebrews is drawing on this to remind us today not to fall into that vicious cycle. Just like Israel, we can refuse to do what God calls us to do. Yet, just as with Israel, God continues to desire fellowship with us. He calls us to move forward. Yet oftentimes, we run the other way. We choose the very paths that are guaranteed to lead to death and destruction, rather than the blessing of life in the presence of God. As I said, that was a kind of excursus, to return then to the big picture of Hebrews. Much of the book of Hebrews is focused on showing that Jesus' atoning work provides the ultimate solutions to these problems of sin and fear and slavery and death. If we were, there are different ways we could break this sermon up, but I would suggest that as we think about these issues of how Jesus solves these problems, we see in Hebrews 2 through 4 in particular an emphasis on Jesus as the one who liberates us from the enslaving power of death and from the devil himself, the one who holds this power. The death of Jesus, in a way like Passover, kicks off this new exodus and brings God's people into this new wilderness precisely because the death of Jesus has freed God's people from the enslaving powers of sin and death. But then in Hebrews, mainly Hebrews chapters 5 through 10, the boundaries are a little fuzzy. The author shifts gears and focuses on Jesus as this great heavenly high priest. I would suggest here that this is important and it's often missed when we read the book of Hebrews today. Jesus' ascension, his ascension into heaven, and his ministry as our high priest in heaven solves the problems of guilt and impurity. Now, um, we're going to head out for a few minutes into some deep theological waters. I'm going to make some claims, and, uh, well, I'm happy to talk about them afterwards as well. But these may be bones that you decide not to take home. But I would suggest this is how Hebrews works. The center of gravity, the center of theological gravity... At the core of the Christology and the salvific work of Jesus in the book of Hebrews is not the cross. 
It is instead Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Now, you did not just hear me say the cross doesn't matter. That is not what I said. Indeed, I've already tried to point out one very important way in Hebrews in which Jesus' death is central to the redeeming work, the ransoming work, if you will, the freeing work that brings God's people into the wilderness. What I'm suggesting is not that there's any less of the cross, but that the salvation Jesus provides is so much more than the cross. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus are just as central to our salvation as is the cross. That's what I'm suggesting. And this, I think, is one of the points where Hebrews brings some particular clarity to the larger story about Jesus and about God's people in our biblical canon. Now, it's important as we think about this to step back again to Leviticus just for a moment and reflect on how sacrifice actually works. What is going on with sacrifice? Because Hebrews, more than any other New Testament text, speaks about Jesus as high priest and speaks about Jesus as offering his sacrifice, indeed offering himself as a sacrifice to the Father. And that it is precisely in Jesus' self-offering that the problems of impurity and guilt get dealt with. Sacrifice is concerned with bringing a gift into the presence of God. That is what it is. Sacrifice is offering. Sometimes we think sacrifice is all about killing things. But of course, lots of sacrifices in Leviticus have no blood at all. They're not about killing. It's about bringing a gift to God. And there are many reasons why these gifts ought to be brought in fulfillment of a vow, as a thank offering, because you love God, and also to deal with sin and impurity, to bring atonement, forgiveness, and purification. When we look at Leviticus... What we find is that it is the activities of the priests in presenting the sacrifice to God by bringing it to certain altars, which makes atonement. In Leviticus, no animal is killed on the Jewish altars, on the Israelite altars. None. The killing of the animal happens somewhere else. The blood of the animal and the body of the animal, depending on which sacrifice it is, are what are applied to the altars. And it's there that Leviticus says, the priests do the work that makes atonement. That is bringing the elements of the sacrifice into God's presence by putting it on a holy altar. This, I would suggest is exactly why the ascension of Jesus matters so much. Because it is not enough in sacrifice to simply kill an animal. You actually have to present it to God. This is why resurrection and ascension are so central, along with the cross, to the salvation that Jesus makes possible. 
Because in his ascension, Jesus presents himself as the sacrifice to God. And God says, that's great. I love it. I will forgive and I will purify because of my son who has gone out from me and now returned to me. And he returns as a resurrected human being, presenting his very self to the Father. Now, there are a few texts that we can look at just to highlight for you the extent to which Hebrews really does focus on the ascended Christ. Hebrews 4.15, for example. I think some of these. And, uh, sorry, I may have given you the wrong verse. Hold on a second. It's 4.14. Yeah, 4.14. Sorry about that. 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us then hold fast to our confession. Jesus passed through the heavens, and he did this as our great high priest. Look, too, at Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. Now, the writer says, the very point in what we've been saying is this. We have this kind of high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, the one that the Lord set up, not any human being. And then Hebrews 9.24. Again, this is only a sampling. But these texts, I think, give us particular clarity on this question. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with human hands, which are only copies of the true things, but he went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. That is why Jesus ascended into heaven, to appear in God's presence on our behalf. That is exactly what the high priest in Leviticus does to bring about forgiveness and purification for God's people one time every year on the great day of atonement. The high priest and only the high priest enters into God's presence as it most fully dwells on earth among his people in the tabernacle. Only the high priest is allowed into the Holy of Holies because the Holy of Holies is nothing less than the throne room of God on earth. God sits enthroned between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. And there the high priest presents the blood of the goat and the bull to bring purification and forgiveness of sins once a year. This, the author of Hebrews says, is exactly what Jesus did for us by ascending into heaven. He presented the sacrifice to the Father by appearing in God's very presence 
on our behalf. Dealing with our sin and dealing with our impurities. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' ascension are all working together to make atonement for us, to solve the problems of enslavement to sin, to solve the problems of the need for forgiveness, and to bring purification. It is not enough, let me put it a different way, it is not enough simply to be freed from the devil. We need something else. We need sacrifice that will maintain our relationship with God because we will still sin. That is what Jesus is doing in heaven right now, today. Today, Hebrews says in 725, because Jesus always lives, resurrection, he is always able to intercede for us. High priestly work before God right now when we need it. This is why, under the new covenant, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because our high priest is always at the right hand of God interceding for us. There's a little bit of Romans 8 that snuck in there. But this is what Hebrews is giving us a very vivid picture of. The Son of God, who suffered and died to free us from slavery, who takes his people out into the wilderness and then leaves them for a time to go into God's presence so that, unlike Israel in the past, we can move forward. Jesus has gone to that promised place that he will bring all of the rest of God's people with him. What is required is perseverance. And what brings that is in part the assurance that we need not fear the tests in the wilderness. And that we need not fear now in Christ to run into the presence of God. In the time when help is needed, we can do what Nadab and Abihu did wrong. Why? Because Jesus, our brother, is there at God's right hand interceding for us. That is why Hebrews spends so much time reflecting on Jesus as high priest. To show us that we need not fear that we can move forward, and that God is absolutely 100% going to make good on his promises. The world to come is open for us because Jesus, the Joshua of our new covenant, went there ahead of us. And he beckons us to follow him. So, Hebrews, sisters and brothers, is there to teach us about who Jesus is and about the atonement that we have in him. This is full atonement. Our brother has actually gone into the presence of God and he stayed there. Something that no high priest has ever done before. 
And he stays there for us, interceding for us. In the time when we need help, we don't have to look back to our slavery. We can look forward to the promises that are to come. If you've heard God calling you from heaven, there is no more reason to be afraid even when you live in the wilderness. If perhaps you've never before responded to God's call, this is the time. Today, when you hear his voice, listen to the one who encourages and warns us from heaven. Our brother, Jesus, the son of God and the son of man. We don't need to disobey any longer. We can claim the crown of life that is offered to us because of Jesus. And we can boldly approach God's gracious throne. In conclusion, Hebrews reminds us that all of life in the last days will be full of trial. But Hebrews also reminds us That life in the last days is a life of freedom from enslavement. Freedom from enslavement to the devil. Freedom from enslavement to the fear of death. And freedom to be forgiven. On our own, we have no right to forgive ourselves. On our own, we have no right to forgive ourselves. Only God can forgive. But we are not on our own. We cannot fight the battle by ourselves, but we need not turn back because of that. Because there is one who fights for us, one who has given his life to free us, and one who has ascended into the presence of the Father to intercede for us. Because of that, we can be confident in our service to God, in our worship to God, and in our fellowship with God. Where our new Joshua has gone is where we are called to go. Now let's follow, even in the wilderness. Let's pray briefly as we begin a time of reflection. Father, your word amazes us, not least because it is alive, not least because it took on flesh and blood, suffered, died, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand where you are right now. Holy God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds transform us. Give us, O God, the courage that we need. Lord Jesus, we are looking for your help, and we come before you confident, knowing that you have been tested in every way just as we are, and you did not sin. Therefore, we know that you understand, and we know that you can be a merciful and faithful high priest on our behalf, pleading with your Father. 
And for this, we will forever thank and praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.